for coming. Thank you, Shireen, for organizing. Um, I would like to, to continue with the theme, with the subject of BDS, because it seems to me that it is one sort of access point or subject that allows us to access the relationship between Palestine and the world. And in particular, I'd like to think about the anxieties BDS generates. So for those of you who have anxieties about BDS, or I know people who have anxieties about BDS, this talk is for you. <laughs> Why is it that BDS, the BDS call, generate so much ambivalence? What explains the fact that supporters of Palestinian decolonizing aspirations and critics of Israeli policies of occupation still find it difficult to endorse BDS? What does the BDS call trigger in its addressees? What politics does it invite them to practice? And why are these politics so suspect to so many today? That Israel enjoys a certain immunity in the world is one correct answer, but certainly, certainly not sufficient. For not all opposition to BDS is led by Zionists, their supporters and their allies, or even their silent, neutral observers. More importantly, not all responses to BDS are either oppositions or endorsements. Many addressees do not know how to respond to the BDS call, cannot bring themselves to appreciate its demands. Some might even support BDS in principle, but oppose it in practice, arguing that its implementation is carried out by an authoritarian cult that does not leave them enough freedom of choice, but ties them down, restricts their freedom to think, and to act, and to collaborate. This ambivalence is voiced by people who know a decent amount about Palestine. Indeed, some of them teach its modern history of colonization since the 19th century and understand fully the reality of a people suffocated and not able to breathe, being able to breathe, to borrow from another condition. Living in refugee camps and under occupation, surrounded by checkpoints and walls of the short and the tall variety. But what explains, nevertheless, this pers the persisting ambivalence about BDS? What explains this ambivalence is in part, and only in part, the fact that the BDS call is not entirely of our world and of its associated notions of privatized politics and freedom. BDS is rather of a different world, a world in which it was still possible to support freedom struggles and by this I mean struggles for freedom from oppression, subjugation, struggles for emancipation, struggles for equality. A world in which freedom was still associated with justice, and regardless of whether it was possible to actualize justice or not, it was still conceivable to oppose conditions of unfreedom by means of collective solidarity. Today's world is different. Today, so much politics reduced to having personal political positions and opinions and preferences, free from external norms and community bonds. Meanwhile, political practice that is working with others and under the constraints of others is relegated for the most part to parties and institutions of the state. Against this world and in relation to it, 
the BDS call mobilizes people to reject the normalization of Israel and institutions, to take part in a larger solidarity community with its own norms of justice and, and aspirations for decolonization. The BDS call addresses us and demands that we do not retrieve back into our own autonomous choices or inaction. But this is precisely where BDS, despite the careful liberal articulation of its demands, generates ambivalence when it clashes with contemporary notions of freedom. Freedom, as Wendy Brown argues, has many permutations, but its contemporary neoliberal variant, quote, reduces to the absence of coercion, especially by the state, but also by anyone any, or anything with the power to enforce its rules or norms, end quote. That is to say, neoliberal freedom equates with non-coercion, equates non-coercion. Freedom is a license to act and to think against any given norm. Contemporary freedom is a permission to free oneself from any inherited value. Significantly, freedom as non-coercion clashes with freedom as the initiation of emancipation, freedom as the practice of collective struggle, freedom as the aspiration for decolonization, freedom as equality. In short, a host of freedoms in which the BDS call is based and which directly challenges freedom as non-coercion. Freedom as non-coercion fosters white nationalist crusades on American campuses today who, in the name of freedom and speech, can deliver hate speech and racism. But freedom is a signifier that enables the dismantling of all communities, associations, solidarities, and values is not only the property of neoliberals or neo-fascists. It also saturates contemporary political culture, showing itself among... In a, in many places, including in the opposition to an ambivalences about BDS. Consider the argument for academic freedom that is often mobilized against BDS. The freedom at the core of many such arguments is not the freedom to produce works that defy conditions of unfreedom, especially the ones affected by those academics' own institutions. It is also not the freedom to respond to calls for justice and equality. It is not the freedom to promote boycott at institutions where boycott is suspect and censored. Rather, the academic freedom invoked in opposition to BDS is a freedom that coexists with sheer unfreedom, is a freedom in spite of conditions of unfreedom, that is freedom unbothered by unfreedom, a freedom that gains its meaning by its mere opposition to what it is not. This version, shallow version, of freedom has come to guide many additional responses to BDS, not only in Israel, not only in the U.S. It is also characteristic of current BDS debates in Palestine itself, especially around questions of freedom of expression in the arts. Consider recent controversy during which several actors in the cultural field emphasized the status of art as above all restrictions. For art to remain art, they argued, it must be created and enjoyed regardless of all norms, including anti-normalization. This alone guarantees art's creativity. But they went further. They conflated the boycott demand with the PA's and Israeli occupation's suppression of speech. In other words, they equated boycott to censorship. And many also equate 
boycott to censorship in other places as well. But this conflation and this equation are only possible once values and legacies of justice begin to be considered as dictates and once the freedom invoked in the boycott call is muted and can no longer be heard and understood. We can also glimpse the workings of freedom as non-coercion in the changing agendas of Palestinian feminist NGOs. Some are now reconsidering their past emphasis on the intersections between questions of gender, occupation, and colonization. They suggest they want to free themselves of, the, of agendas imposed as they have been by the nationalist struggle and to focus instead on the internal, on the internal, problems, on the internal problems of Palestinian society that are supposedly have less to do with other structures of power. And so, if, I'm returned to the, if I am to return to the questions I started with, then freedom as non-coercion is also what enables many to remain ambivalent about the BDS call. For the BDS call asks that we abide by certain norms of behavior, boycott, in the struggle against colonization and injustice. The contemporary regime of freedom cannot but translate this call for solidarity into suspect dictates imposed by an authoritarian cult that is busy decreeing what to do and what not to do. Freedom as non-coercion is also in part what informs the suggested alternative that individual scholars should choose for themselves whether or not to abide by BDS, but institutions such as MESA need not be implicated. Of course, this alternative has many objectives, one of which is, in the case of MESA, is to protect MESA against any possible Zionist counter-efforts. But it is, it is important to note that this alternative is also satisfied with paths of political actions that are privatized and individualized. Under this alternative, a community of scholars, which MESA is, which this gathering is, cannot and should not bond itself with other communities in struggle. How then to intervene in a world in which politics reduce to personal political positions and opinions and freedom shrinks to actions without constraints. What kind of bond will connect us if we want to participate in modest ways in the making and the remaking of this world? In a world where there is so much talk about victims and sympathies for them and so little talk about perpetrators and their denormalization, how are we to make tame the making of victims? In a world in which everything, almost everything, has become the subject of critique and dismantlement, or even cynicism, can we still follow in the path of others? And most importantly, in a world where despite all odds, movements for justice and emancipation are still forming, are we able, as a community of scholars, to become their addressees, to appreciate the interventions they're making, and to follow in their steps? It seems to me that these are some of the questions that we ought to reckon with if we are to appreciate the interventions that BDS makes. But to do so, we must also put the BDS intervention in its proper context. By context, I do not mean the long history and present, uh, long history and present colonization of Palestine. The context I want to reference is Israel's geopolitical dominance, along with its allies from the Gulf and the West, but also technological dominance. 
Israel ranks among the top 15 military powers in the world. It's, in the world. its economy ranks above, uh, among the top 20. Crucially, in the field of technology, Israel has been nicknamed as a startup nation because of its Silicon Valley, which is second only to California's Silicon Valley, and some even say on par with it. Giants like Apple, Microsoft, and Intel have set up their first research and development centers abroad in Israel. In February 2017, Fortune magazine released a list of the top 50 companies leading the artificial intelligence, the AI revolution. The U.S. is leading the revolution, of course, with 39 startups, but next are Israel, the U.K., and China with three startups each, and then France and Taiwan with one company each. Israel's three startups is significant considering its smaller population. In other words, Israel is not only a normalized state, but it is technologically the most powerful state in the Middle East and one of the more powerful in the world. That is to say, there is forced normalization that is built into the technological market. And for those of you who bought iPhone 10, for those of you who bought iPhone 10, the face recognition technology that iPhone 10 features was also first developed by an Israeli company and only later sold to Apple. These facts matter. They matter because the call to boycott and to denormalize and decenter Israel unfolds, this call unfolds, in a context of radical normalization and centering of Israel. Meanwhile, yesterday, as many of you must have heard, the U.S. threatened to shut down the PLO mission office here in Washington if the PLO continues to pursue efforts to bring Israel to um, the, ICG, the ICJ. These facts, as I said, matter. For indeed, if if indeed artificial AI has and will further revolutionize humanity, as they say, and if Israel is in part leading this revolution, one has to wonder as, why, as to why it will ever reverse its policies, let alone its basic colonial constitution. That said, as economist Samuel Butmi of Pakbi and Birzeit argues, while being a startup nation is a strength, it, also, it is also a weakness that exposes Israel to pressure from the outside world. Hence the importance of BDS. I started by saying BDS is not entirely of this world. And I want to conclude by saying BDS is still of this world. If in the early 70s, Mahmoud Darwish suggested that, quote, in the conscience of the people of the world, the torch has been passed from Vietnam to us, Palestinians, end quote. Perhaps today we can say that in their BDS call, Palestinians have picked up the torch from South Africans but are sharing it at present with other communities of struggle. The communities, these communities include recently Turkish academics who have recently called for, quote, a targeted academic boycott of Turkey. The call translated not only into English, as is commonly done, but into 19 additional languages of the world, calls upon faculty, institutions of higher education, funding councils, academic and professional associations to boycott Turkish complicit universities and higher education institutions. An association between freedom and justice is available in these various efforts, Palestinian, Turkish, and otherwise. 
By responding to the call for boycott, there is also a practice of solidarity through which individuals begin to exceed their own isolated selves and enrich themselves by being with others and for others. To call this practice of solidarity dictates is to blind ourselves to the openness solidarity engenders and to the legacy of freedom it invokes and honors. To label a call for boycott censorship and to posit one's freedom in opposition to the call is to relegate the practice of collective political solidarity to the past and to a world no longer ours. To listen to the voice of justice in the boycott call is to open up our world to multiple times and to renewed possibilities of political struggle against oppression, subjugation, and colonization. As a member of MESA, I hope we can do precisely that. Thank you.